We're in Hebrews chapter 9, if you'll look there. We're going to look at verses 14 through 22, Hebrews 9. I titled the sermon, Dead Reckoning, because there's a lot in this passage about death. There are acts that lead to death, and verse 14 are literally dead works. In verse 15, we have to reckon on the death of Christ for redemption. In verse 16, there's the death of a person who makes a will. In verse 17, the will is not in effect until someone has died. In verses 18 through 20, we have blood, lots of blood. Bloodshed and death is the basis of covenant. There's a lot of death in this passage, and we must reckon with it. So we're going to do some dead reckoning this morning. Let me read verses 14 through 22. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. That's why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Verse 14, again, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, clear, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. We saw last week that we can have consciences that are cleansed. But notice that this cleansing is not from guilt, as we might expect, but rather from acts that lead to death. That phrase is more of an interpretation than a translation, since the text literally says, cleanse our consciences from dead works. What are dead works? Are they sins that lead to death? The wages of sin is death. Or are they something else? The NIV offers an alternative reading in the footnotes for from worthless rituals. If that's the idea, then our author was thinking of the guilt his readers wrestled with because they'd stopped taking part in Jewish rituals like the Day of Atonement or in the sin and cleansing sacrifices. Christ alone could cleanse their consciences so that they didn't feel compelled by guilt to take part in such dead works. Well, it seems to me that the key to understanding the meaning of dead works lies in the rest of the sentence. If we want to answer the question, what are dead works, we have to answer a related question. Why do we need to be cleansed from them? I think the answer is clear in the second part of that sentence, so that we may serve the living God. A dead work is a self-serving action that produces no result for God. A dead work is like a dead battery. It doesn't accomplish anything. 
Images of dead works would rise to the first reader's minds, like the ritual that's mentioned in verse 13, the sacrifice of the red heifer for a ceremonial cleansing. But there are other dead works too. Like this morning, you may be engaged in a dead work. Going to church can be a dead work. Reading the Bible can be a dead work. Feeding the poor can be a dead work. A dead work fails to produce the result God intended. It doesn't conform us to the image of his son, doesn't lead us into the knowledge of God, it doesn't honor God or bring him glory, doesn't grow out of faith. It's a work, but it's dead. St. James said that faith without works is dead, being alone, literally. But works without faith are also dead, and for the same reason. They die of loneliness. Faith and works exist in symbiosis. They can only live in company with each other. When you separate them, they die. Dead works lie on one end of a spectrum where they dwell with dead faith. On the other end of the spectrum stand living works and lively faith. When we perform dead works with dead faith, even if they're religious by nature, we're only serving ourselves. When we perform living works with living faith, we're serving God. We need to be cleansed from dead works. We need to be freed from the overpowering urge to serve ourselves, justify ourselves, and bring glory to ourselves. Because when that's what we're doing, we miss out on serving God. We fail to bring glory to God because we're too busy trying to bring it to ourselves. We scorn Christ's work of justification by our almost continual effort to justify ourselves. That's a dead work. Some years ago, in Chicago, a 16-year-old driver backed into a light pole. It broke and fell onto the roof of her car, crushing her 12-year-old passenger. Both girls were rushed to the hospital, the 16-year-old driver with minor injuries, but the 12-year-old with a catastrophic brain injury. That, the younger girl was, after a short time, day or so, removed from life support, and she died. The 16-year-old was overwhelmed by guilt, and she told the hospital chaplain, I'm going to be like a daughter to her parents. I'm going to go over to their house every day and babysit for them. I'll wash dishes for them every night. I'll go over there every week and mow their lawn. The chaplain gradually helped her realize the truth that no matter what she did, she could never replace their daughter. She could never do enough to make up for what was done. All her work for them would really just be serving herself, an attempt to justify herself. It would be a dead work. The grieving parents graciously forgave th that young girl. She was liberated, set free, redeemed from trying to settle the debt she could never pay. But it was the parents' grace and not her works that set her free. Their forgiveness opened the way for her to really serve them rather than herself, to serve them in love rather than herself in guilt and shame. And so with us, we've been liberated by grace from self-serving religion into God-serving love. Now, if you hear that and you think, but I, I don't want to serve God. I still have a lot of living to do. You've missed something really important. All that living you still have to do, if you belong to Christ, 
involves serving God. It was for this you were redeemed. Serving God is what Christ followers do. It's what we were made, what we were remade for. If you're God's person, born again, redeemed, saved, you will never find fulfillment by serving yourself. We have self-serve gas stations, self-serve yogurt, self-serve car washes, and even I saw recently a self-serve dog wash. But there is no such thing as self-serve Christianity. Serving yourself will never satisfy you. Little thrills, sexual encounters, the accumulation of more and more money, it may satisfy someone who hasn't been born again into a new life. But frankly, I doubt it. But it won't satisfy you. You were bought, says St. Paul, at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. It's not just that you owe God that much, though you do. It's that the engineer designed you for this. It's who you are. The servant of God. The word translated serve here, to serve the living God, is the normal Greek word for the service rendered by a priest. Under the old covenant, you remember from a week or two ago, this is verse 8, the way to the holy place was only open to priests. Only a priest could go into the holy place in service to God. That has not changed. That remains true under the new covenant. But something has changed. Under the old covenant, only a few select people could be priests. Under the new covenant, we're all priests. All of us who've believed on Jesus Christ and been born again into a new kind of life. Christ, our high priest, has ordained us all as priests in the service of God. There's been a long-running debate among Catholics about whether women should be ordained to the priesthood. It's been going on for years and years and years. And that, of course, is their business, and they have lots of factors to consider in making a decision like that. But understand this. In the new covenant that Christ mediates, both men and women and children, too, are made priests so that they can spend their lives serving God. They may serve at a gas station rather than at an altar, They may serve in a schoolroom or in the mayor's office or in a factory. The point is not where they serve, but who they serve, not themselves. Their consciences have been cleansed from those dead works. But God, you can serve God. You must serve God where you are. Verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, made priests and kings with him to reign, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free, or literally, now a death has taken place for the purpose of redemption from the sins committed under the first covenant. Christ is the pioneer of the faith. That's an important theme in Hebrews. In the beginning of the letter, the unique Son of God pioneers the way for his followers to become sons of God. In chapter 2, the pioneer of salvation is made perfect through suffering, making it possible for his followers to be made holy. He's opened the way. Here in verse 12, our pioneer and leader enters death to obtain liberation, redemption, so that, verse 15, he can liberate 
He can provide redemption for his followers. Jesus is the trailblazer for all his people. He's the pioneer of the faith. When we talk about following Jesus, we usually make that moralistic. We talk about it in terms of obedience, and that's appropriate. If you're not obeying, you're not following. But it's important to realize that Jesus is leading somewhere. We follow him into his family, for example. The son opens the way for us to become sons and daughters. We follow him into holiness. We follow him even into death and resurrection. That's the truth Charles Wesley grasped and put into words. So are we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. He's the pioneer, the trailblazer. Now, over the past few weeks, we've come across the word covenant again and again. The book of Hebrews contains more than half the uses of the word covenant in the New Testament. And it's an important word in the Bible. It occurs over 350 times in the Old Testament. The idea of covenant is uh, you have to grasp covenant if you're going to get what God has done in the world and is doing now. As I explained a few weeks ago, covenant is the most binding agreement into which two parties can enter. Making a covenant is a very serious thing. Uh, we don't have many examples in our world today. One of them, though, is the covenant of marriage. When people make covenant vows to each other, that they will be faithful to each other as long as they shall live. Making covenant in the Bible always requires some kind of death. So when God entered into covenant with Abraham, this is Genesis chapter 15, animals died. They were sacrificed. They were literally cut in half. Later, when the first covenant was established at Mount Sinai, this is Exodus chapter 20. You can read about it for the next 10 chapters after that. Animals were again sacrificed as Israel's representatives agreed to the terms of the covenant. Scholars believe the covenant required animal sacrifice as a way of saying if I fail to fulfill the terms of this covenant, may my life, like this animal's, be forfeit. So it's a serious business. The covenant ritual was carried out in ancient times, uh, countless of times, between men, between tribes, between nations. But even God entered into covenant. We have seven God-human covenants in the scriptures. The last of those seven covenants was laid out in the book of Jeremiah, and our author repeated it in chapter 8 of this book. And it's called the New Covenant. Humans had proved to be lousy covenant keepers. So God took responsibility for the fulfillment of the New Covenant on himself. Do you hear what that means? God said, if I fail to fulfill the terms of this covenant, may my life like this animal's, be forfeit. As in all covenants, a sacrifice was required. But this time, the sacrifice would not be of a substitute animal, but of the covenant mediator himself. Now that we've got the idea of covenant back in our heads, look at verse 16. In the case of a will, I thought we were talking about covenants. What's this about a will? It's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. That's why even the first covenant, now we're back to that again, 
was not put into effect without blood. It's as if our author is switching back and forth between covenant, talking about covenant, talking about will. He has, in fact, been talking about covenant the entire time. The word translated covenant in verse 15 and referred to in verse 18 is exactly the same word as translated will in verses 16 and 17. A will is a covenant. That's the other example of covenant in modern times. The will is a special kind of covenant in which death precedes the implementation of the covenant's terms. We won't be able to follow our author unless we realize he's still talking covenant this whole time. In this case, the kind of covenant that only becomes legally binding after a death has occurred. But our author takes that and reminds us that every covenant is like that. Even the first covenant, verse 18, was not put into effect without blood. A death always precedes the implementation of covenant. Now look at verse 19. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, that is, when he had explained the terms of the first covenant, the Ten Commandments are covenant terms, if you haven't put this together. The Ten Commandments are the terms of the first covenant. When he explained all those terms of the first covenant, he took the blood of calves, sacrificed animals, together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. They weren't commanded to keep the blood, but the covenant. The blood reminded the covenanters that this was serious, that sacrifice was involved. May what happened to this animal happen to me if I don't keep the terms of the covenant. Our author doesn't want his readers to miss the point that sacrifice is part of covenant. Covenant can't be implemented without it. Verse 22, the law requires nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Why is that? Why does covenant? You understand what covenant is. It's this, the serious entry of one person into another person's needs in life. Why does that require sacrifice? I like Tim Keller's answer. He says that in a real world of relationships, it's impossible to love people without in some sense sharing or even changing places with them. And he offers two examples. First, he asks us to imagine a man who's innocent but's being hunted down by some powerful group. He reaches out to you for help. If you don't help him, he'll die. But if you ally yourself with him, you who were perfectly safe and secure will be in mortal danger. He'll experience increased safety and security through your involvement but only because you're willing to enter into his insecurity and vulnerability. Or he offers another illustration. Consider parenting. Children come into the world in a condition of complete dependence. They can't operate as self-sufficient, independent agents unless their parents give up much of their independence and freedom for years. You can either sacrifice your freedom or theirs. It's them or you. To love your children well, you must decrease that they may increase. You must be willing to enter into the dependency they have so eventually they can experience the freedom and independence you have. Keller then writes, all life-changing love towards people with serious needs is a substitutional sacrifice. If you become personally involved with them in some way, their weaknesses flow toward you and your strengths flow toward them. Now it hardly needs to be said that we are people with serious needs. 
driven by a relentless need of purpose, hounded by fears, dissatisfied at the best of times, faced with our own mortality and death, we have serious needs. The loving God enters our situation with our needs. He enters our suffering. That was inevitable when he entered into covenant with humans. He took our suffering into his perfect life so that he could eventually take it out of our imperfect ones. Keller asks, how can God be a God of love if he doesn't become personally involved in suffering the same violence, oppression, grief, weakness, and pain that we experience? And the answer to that question is twofold. He can't. One, he can't. And two, only one major religion ever claims that God does. So what do we make out of this? How does this fit into our lives? What's the take-home? I think the first take-home is this. It's a serious thing to be in covenant with the eternal God. If your relationship with God is way down on your list of priorities, it's time to update your list. You may say, I don't really know where God fits on my priority list. Well, you can find out. Check to see how much of yourself measured in time and resources you give him. If you give him a Sunday morning once every few weeks, you're not taking him seriously enough. But you can be sure he's taking you seriously. He takes covenant seriously. Second, take the pulse of your works. See if they're dead or alive. Dead works can be done without faith. They're self-serving, not God-serving. They enhance your reputation, not God's. But living works, those done in service to the living God, can't be performed without faith. They grow out of a relationship with God. We do them because they're good things to do, but... Also, because they're God things to do. Because we've spent time with him. He's rubbed off on us. We don't do them to look good. By the way, if you find yourself doing religious things and looking around to see what other people think, that's a dead giveaway that that's a dead work. We do them because God wants us to or because it's become our nature to do it. Either way, we aren't looking out the corner of our eye to see if anyone's watching. The final take-home is this. If you're a Christ follower, someone whose life has been changed through faith in Jesus, you must learn to think of yourself as a priest. That has to become part of your identity and consider your duties service to God. Now, maybe you light a blowtorch rather than a candle. It can still be service to God. Maybe you pound nails instead of pulpits. It can still be service to God. Maybe you lead a class of first graders rather than some choir of saints. It can still be service to God, and you must come to think of it that way. A man pulled into a parking lot of a friend's church one Sunday, and there was a fellow standing out in the parking lot, and there were a few cars out there. And he pulled over, rolled down his window, and he asked the man what time the service started. And this Quaker answered him, as soon as the meeting is over. 
The service starts as soon as the meeting's over. He had it right. When we leave church, we can't say, well, I did my service to God this week. I got that checked off my list. When we come here on Sunday, we take a little time out of our individual service to God to worship him corporately as brothers and sisters. But when we go back to our homes, our jobs, our schools, our friends, we're going back into service. You're a priest of the living God. See to it that you act that way. Now let's pray. I thank you, O oh God, that you've promised us an inheritance. Together with the saints. And you've made us priests and kings with you to reign. Lord, these things are beyond us. But we do understand that you entered into our suffering. You took it into yourself. And we thank you. Now, Lord, I ask for help to remember who we are. Give us grace to live that way this week. Give us some, some successes as we go back into our workplaces and our homes and serve you as priests. And I ask you to do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.